It is Thursday, April 1st, 2021. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. This is the LDS Live podcast. It's interesting that I'm doing a podcast on April Fool's Day. I have no idea where April Fool's Day came from. I guess I could look it up on good old Wikipedia. Since it's on Wikipedia, it must be true, right? Anyway, I want to tell you, though, since we are talking about April Fool's Day, I have never actually pulled off a good April Fool's stunt. I tried to once, but it didn't work. What I tried to do is I call-forwarded all of my phone calls to a phone number out of Buffalo, New York, so that when people would call me, they would actually get a friend of mine. But the problem is nobody called me during the time when I was working. This is when I was working at Verizon Wireless. And so... Uh, that's That was the April Fool's joke, but the best April Fool's joke that I had heard of, at least on the radio, and I'm sure that there are several that were done back when radio was good. We'll get to my podcast here in a few minutes, but let's talk about something a little light for a little bit here before we get into a, some heavy, heavy topics. Back in 1991... It was April 1st of 91, and I did not hear this stunt, but I heard about it. There was a radio station in Boise, which is now defunct, but it was called KF95. They are now the river, 94.9 the river. But back in 1991, they were KF95. It was a top 40 station. And the person who did the radio show back then was Dave the Radio Slave, also known as Dave Stone. And he... Did an April Fool's joke where he said the time. And I think he said it was something to the effect of 7.20 when it was actually 6.20 in the morning. And he said, if you didn't change your clock, you're you're going to be late for work. I can't remember. I think it might have been 7.20. He said it was 7.20 when it was 6.20. Or I think he said it was, yeah, I think that's what it was. He said it was uh, 7.20 when it was 6.20. And he said, if you, don't, if you didn't change your time, then you're out of luck. So the reason I knew about this is because my aide at the time, uh, we'll call her Cheryl. That's not her real name, but I'll call her that to protect the innocent. She told me about this joke, and she was getting ready she was hurrying up real quick because she was well in her mind she was almost late for class and then i guess after a song or two was played on the air that dave stone dave the radio slave said april fools so i thought that was pretty good i'm sure some of you have heard a lot of the april fool stunts over the year my sister did a good april fools joke she actually told everybody that we were moving. The funny thing about that is this was back on uh, April Fool's Day of 1987. My sister told everybody that we were moving to Salt Lake. The funny thing about that, though, is we were actually going to Salt Lake on a vacation that weekend. So th- that, that was kind of ironic. But the problem with that is my parents had uh, had to go to parent-teacher conference because me and Kelly and everybody else, you know, we were kids being raised at home. 
So my parents had to go to a parent-teacher conference, and uh, my sister's, I believe it was a fifth-grade teacher. Yes, it was her fifth-grade teacher said, oh, I heard you're moving. My parents said, no, where'd you hear that from? Oh, you're, oh, Kelly told us, my sister. And she, she, they said, oh, well, it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> the reason, like I said, the reason it was funny, because we were actually taking a weekend trip to Salt Lake City, Utah, that particular weekend. So, yes, there's some pretty good April Fool's stunts out there that you can play if you want to. Another April Fool's stunt that I had heard about, I, again, I wasn't there when this happened, but I read about it in a book. Well, if you read the book Salamander, we're going to talk about Mark Hoffman. I'm not going to do it on this podcast, but I am going to talk about Mark Hoffman in the next few weeks. I just want to watch the documentary. I haven't seen it yet. I don't have access to Netflix at the moment, but I will have access to it next week. So I'm going to watch the document and come back and report to you. If you read Salamander by Linda Silito talks about Mark Hoffman. If you read Salamander, there's a scene in there that was talked about where Kathy Sheets, the woman who was killed, one of uh, Mark Hoffman's victims, that was murdered the same day that Steve Christensen was. Kathy Sheets one day pulled an April Fool stunt with one of her children. I don't know what grade her kid was in but she sent a note to the teacher with a whole bunch of papers that said something to the effect my daughter needs this medication at this time she needs this medication at this time and the list just went on and there was a whole box of papers that she was that the teacher was supposed to pull out and the last paper said april fools so i thought that was pretty funny anyway let's get on with the podcast i have a lot to cover today and I know that I'm a few weeks behind on these particular stories, but the reason I didn't do a podcast last week is because I knew I would be by myself, and when I'm by myself, I rely on technology that I otherwise do not rely on. For example, I have a Braille note. A Braille note is a Braille note taker, much like a tablet. Well, it is a tablet that runs off the Droid operating system, and it has its own operating system built into it as well. It's kind of complicated. But the Braille Note has been in the shop in Canada for a few weeks, and the last few times I've been doing a podcast, I've just been using my computer. But I don't want to do that when I'm doing the podcast on my own. So... That's why I took the week off last week, because I didn't have it with me, and then when I had it, I had, well, I did get it, but then I had to reconfigure it, and that took a lot of time. So I'm back in business, so now I can do podcasts alone. I want to talk about uh, lighting up the Y, and I am going to discuss the honor code, and we're going to discuss President Uchtdorf giving money to Joe Biden. So let's get to it. As you know, March 4th of this year, there was a group of students that took up uh, portable lamps to the Y. They hiked up to the mountain. They hiked uh, to this mountain to the Y. My understanding, it's about a mile, mile and a half hike, something like that. It's not a very easy hike either, from what I had heard. And given the fact that it was done on a Thursday night, was awfully chilling because you got to remember hiking that mountain it gets 
pretty chilly up there at that mountain. Probably colder than um, down in the valley of Provo, down in Provo, down at BYU. So they hiked up to the Y, and they shined their lamps, and I'm guessing that they were different color lamps because there was blue, red, purple, and uh, green, and orange. And what they did is they shined it so it was all in rainbow colors. People were uh, designated a certain spot on the Y there. And they were shining a light on the Y for an hour. Now, this was in response to the protest, or this was in response to the updated honor code last February. Uh, and then they came out with the announcement of March 4th. So essentially, the honor code that was updated February 19th of 2020 took out the homosexual part of the honor code. It took out the part where it says that it's not appropriate to show affection as, a, you know, same-sex affection, same-sex dating, that kind of thing. And instead, it just said to live a virtuous life. For two weeks, it was unclear about the homosexual part, can you practice same-sex same affection? You, and so you had people making, you had same-sex couples, bisexual couples making out at the Brigham Young statue. You had same-sex couples, men and women, holding hands. It was just, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It was, it was quite, uh, I don't know what the word for it is, but it was ritherly interesting. That's, all I, that's probably the best thing I can say about it. It was interesting. Then on March 4th, 2020, the honor code, the, the, there was a person named Paul Johnson who was in the Quorum of the Seventy, and he was actually over the CES education system, still is, I do believe. He wrote a letter that went out to the BYU staff and uh, the whole entire student body that basically set the record straight that, no, that, that is inappropriate. He actually quoted an excerpt of the Proclamation of the Family. But before I get to that quote, I want to read you something else here. There is and always has been more to living the Lord's standard of a chaste and virtuous life and reframing from sexual relations outside of marriage. Then Elder Paul B. Johnson went on to quote the proclamation of the family. He quoted an excerpt of it. Gender is an essential characteristic of individuals' pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose, and that marriage is for the faith only to be between a man and a woman. Once that letter came out, that's when a lot of protesters came out to the student center at BYU and started protesting. And then they were going to march down to church headquarters eventually, and, or march up to church headquarters eventually in Salt Lake. On Thursday, March 4th of this year, at 8 o'clock p.m., well, a little before 8, but at 8 o'clock, the lighting started at the Y on top of the mountain that BYU owns, which they bought from the, the Forest Service. And there was a lot of comments about that on social media, a lot of photos being taken in the city of Provo itself, saying, I, I saw lights at the, I saw the lighting, you know, things like I saw the light, I saw the Y being lit. And... People were sharing photos with each other. 
and people were even parking at the parking lot to watch it in person. <clears throat> now, about this whole thing, this did not get publicized before the event. This was done purposely so that people would not protest against what they were doing or that according to them, the organizers of this event on March 4th, 2021, so that the right-wing extremists wouldn't stop them or protest against what they were doing. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what it said. Brad Talbot, who organized this event, made it very clear that this was not a protest, but this was a message to being sent to Brigham Young University staff that we are here. He also was quoted in an article that is in the show notes that said, we are part of this institution. We should have a place at the Y. Then BYU sent out a tweet later that evening, I believe at about 8.20, so while this was going on, and that tweet said, BYU did not authorize the lighting of the Y tonight. Later... I'm not sure when exactly, but I know that at a later time, uh, they, did, they did send out another tweet that said, any form of public expression on university property requires prior approval. I did a little bit of research on the honor code at BYU. Here's what I found on the research. As far as I can tell, homosexuality was not publicly discussed until 1959. Now, I'm sure it was publicly discussed before then, but as far as I am aware, it wasn't publicly discussed until 1959. And when I say publicly discussed, I'm talking about in speeches. For example, while I was doing my research, the first thing that I came across where homosexuality was even mentioned, was by Ernest Wilkinson during a speech in 1959. There's a link in the show notes if you want to go and read it. But in his speech, he was talking about the history of BYU and how it came about. And when he was done talking about that, he said, BYU students are, should be honorable. Then he talked about the history of the honor code that started in 1949. He also talked about behavior in the armed forces back in 1959 and how he was concerned that homosexuality was creeping into the armed forces. He didn't say creeping in, but he just said it was being practiced in the armed forces in 1959. Let me just tell you something. As far as I know, if that was the case, I'll bet it was quite secretive. But Ernest Wilkinson did have some armed force experience, so he probably found out from people that he was friends with in the armed forces. I'm just telling you, it was probably hush-hush. I'm, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm sure it did. But it was certainly not as talked about as it would be today. I'm just saying. But in the speech, he said, In a student body of 10,000, we can expect to have few of these perverted individuals. Students who participate in any practices of this kind will not be tolerated on this campus. 
Now, let's talk about the honor code the way it was written before February 19th, 2020. Now, this quote that I'm going to read to you comes from the honor code on April 17th, 2007. Apparently, it was unclear about what exactly the honor code said about homosexuals. And so they decided to clear it up in 2007 on April 17th. It said Brigham Young University will respond to the homosexual behavior rather than to feelings or orientation and welcomes as full members of the university community, all of whom meets university standards. It then went on to say homosexual behavior or advocacy of homosexual behaviors are inappropriate and violate the honor code. Homosexual behavior includes not only relations between members of the same sex, but all forms of physical intimacy that gives expression to homosexual feelings. Then obviously, in 2020, they took the homosexual part out of the honor code and just said, live a virtuous life. So it was obviously unclear. That's when things happened that I discussed earlier. I want to comment on this because I have a lot to say. Go back to my interview with Tristan Moyer. It was back in October of 2020. What was going on in October 2020? Well, there was a write-up that the newspapers in Salt Lake did, the Deseret News and the Salt Lake Tribune and probably KSL, KSL Channel 5, that is. But I do remember seeing it in the Tribune. There was a woman named Hannah Syriac who was trying to start a pro-life club at BYU. She was turned down. Devin, or, uh, Tristan Moyer, I don't know, for some reason I keep wanting to call him Devin. Tristan Moyer tried to start a proclamation on the, fa a proclamation on the family club at the same time. They did not know each other at that particular moment. However, the professors, the faculty did not approve of the pro-life or the proclamation of, on the family club. As a matter of fact, they weren't even told how to reword the wording so that these clubs could be approved. If you go back to my interview with Tristan Moyer, he said that professors would come up to him and say, yeah, we personally agree with you, but I can't get this, I can't approve this because it would make me look bad with the LGB students. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said to Tristan, the, the professors. We also talked about in that interview how some of the professors are, have been trying to undermine the proclamation of the family, saying that it's archaic, and I've actually heard this from a few BYU students, not just Tristan Moyer. I remember listening to a talk show host, the Kate Daly Show out of St. George, and she talked about this very thing back in 2019 with a person who runs a site called DefendingUtah.org, ran by Ben McClintock. So my conclusion is this. Sadly so, I believe, based on my interview with Tristan Moyer and what I've heard on the Kate Daly Show and others telling me, 
I believe there are people, not everybody, but I believe there are people in the honor code office and, the prof and certain professors who are trying to undermine the standards at BYU, which, by the way, are church standards. Now, I said this in an interview, but I'm going to say it out here in this podcast. I did not go to BYU. I did not go to BYU by choice. I could have. I certainly had the grade point average to get in, and I certainly would have been welcomed at BYU. There's no question. There have been completely blind people on the BYU campus before. I'm, in fact, I know a couple of them. I know three people who were completely blind and went to BYU back in the 70s. They did just fine. One of them became an attorney. Well, he's legally blind, but the other completely blind person became a, a computer teacher and uh, she did something with setting up computers at people's houses. Got around really well as a completely blind person, very exceptionally well. I knew her in person. The other passed, uh, got a pretty high GPA, grade point average, and he went on to become a Braille teacher. So those two students, uh, the, other te the other person that I know became a Braille teacher also and was very big into Braille note takers. You know, this is back then when we had more primitive note takers like the Braille and Speak and the Millennium note takers like that. So the three people that I knew who were completely blind did exceptionally well at Brigham Young University. I did not go because I moved out of my parents' house to go to college when I was 24. I'd just come back from Louisiana at a training center called the Louisiana Training uh, called the Louisiana Center for the Blind. So I'd come back and decided I was going to branch out on my own and go to college. But you see, I didn't want to obey the honor code entirely. I didn't drink, I didn't sleep around, I didn't do any of that. But I'm sorry at the age of 24, I thought I was a little old for people deciding when I should be back at my apartment. I was a little too old for a curfew. Obviously, being at the age of 40, I'm too old for a curfew now. Unless I'm really, really mentally deficient. Then that's another conversation. But I'm not. I certainly was too old at the age of 24. I'm way too old for it now. And I also like to grow facial hair, and that was not permitted on BYU campus. There were other reasons I didn't go to BYU, but my point is, it was my choice not to go. I have a real problem with these people who are same-sex couples trying to make out on campus and show their affection and then make a big stink about it because they're not welcomed on campus. But let me back up. I don't know who wrote the final honor, the final version of the honor code. I don't know if it was approved by Paul Johnson, Elder Paul B. Johnson, before it was written. I wasn't there. 
and I don't know anyone in the honor code office who I can ask. But this I do know. When the honor code was updated, people from the honor code office were tweeting out, and this is in my interview with uh, Tristan Boyer. People tweeted out that, yes, it's okay to ask to uh, show affectionate as same-sex couples. And when Tristan went into the honor code office, he, was, he asked specifically about that. They gave the politician slash attorney answer. We're not going to discipline same-sex couples for affectionate behavior. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what they said. Something I would expect to hear out of a politician. Not a clear answer, but go ahead and do it. We're not going to say anything. We'll just turn our backs towards you. We'll just turn our backs on this behavior. So I fault the honor code office. They should never have taken out the homosexual part. That leads me to believe what Tristan Moyer told me, that there are people in the honor code office who are trying to undermine church standards at, Br at Brigham Young University. It's interesting that most people who fall away from the church, according to a study that Tristan told me about on the interview are those who are political science, English, and sociology majors. Now, is everybody majoring this in this falling away at BYU? No. But enough people are to the point where it's becoming obvious. And the brethren, I don't think, can do much about it right now. Because their hands are tied, I do know that they are monitoring the situation. I do know that some people go down there from time to time and observe what's happening at BYU campus. You know, maybe some of the Quorum of the Twelve or some of the Seventies sit in on classes. I don't know. I'm not there. And I didn't get that far in the discussion with Tristan. But we have some serious problems. We have professors trying to undermine the morality of Brigham Young University. There's a reason. And I heard him talk about this last year. There's a reason why Glenn Beck will not send his kids to BYU is because of what we are talking about right here, right now. There's a reason. And I think it's quite disturbing. But I want to say something else about this too. Because I constantly hear, when I bring this topic up, I constantly hear, oh, well, I didn't know what I was signing when I went to BYU. Yes, you did. It's clear as day what you're signing. That's crap that I'm not taking. I don't buy that crap. And you shouldn't either. You know what you're signing. But here's the other problem. Oh, I want to go to BYU because my I have to be at BYU because my parents make me. My parents said they wouldn't pay for my education unless I went to BYU. Well, guess what? Go to a community college or go out and get a job until you can afford to go to the university that you want to go to. Apply for a scholarship. 
And for those of you that insist on going to BYU because your parents have made you go to BYU, guess what? You darn better well obey the rules then until you get out. Once you get out of Brigham Young University, you can do whatever you darn well please if you still have that attitude. When you get out of that university and go to uh, a graduate program somewhere across the country, Utah State or wherever, then you can do what you want in terms of same-sex affection, affectionate behavior, drinking, smoking, facial hair, whatever. But if you insist on going to BYU because your parents made you, you better obey the rules then because you signed that paper. I'm sorry, but I have no sympathy if you broke the honor code rules and you signed the paper. Yes, there might be some gray areas. But generally speaking, I don't have sympathy for one who disobeys the honor code rules when they were written in there. Now, I know historically BYU has been lenient, and I'm talking back in the 80s and 90s when uh, Coach Lavelle Edwards was the coach. I know that they were more lenient with athletes. It's come up time and time again. But from what I'm reading and hearing now, I'm not sure that that's the case anymore. Because occasionally I will hear a story about somebody being kicked out of BYU because they were drinking. Someone had premarital sex or someone did this. So I'm not sure that's the case. Yes, I know Coach Lavelle Edwards uh, turned his head on a lot of that behavior. But it's about time they start cracking down on it, and they have been from what I've been reading. And that means athletes as well. And BYU should not allow same-sex affection because it does go against church standards. Now, I've heard the argument, well, if we have uh, same-sex affection, or if we don't have same-sex affection at BYU, and if that's prohibited, then how come heterosexuals can show affection? Well, heterosexual... Showing affection as a heterosexual is very different than same-sex affection. Homosexuality goes against God's plan of creation. It's very clear in the Bible. Several verses talk about it. The church has been very clear on their stance of homosexuality. Now, the church has, been, has become more and more LGBT-friendly, or should I say LGBTQ-friendly. But as far as I know, last time I checked, which wasn't too long ago, the standards haven't changed. So keep that in mind if you apply to Brigham Young University. Whether it's BYU-Provo, BYU-Idaho, or BYU-Hawaii, the standards are the same. I want to talk about something here that has gotten a lot of attention. Elder Uchtdorf's had an account, a family account, and money went to Joe Biden. Elder Uchtdorf acknowledged in a statement that it was an oversight. 
$1,250 went to the Joe Biden campaign and $1,000 went to another Democratic candidate. I don't know who that candidate was because in the article that is on the show notes, it says $600 went to Democrat candidates in Georgia that were in an intense runoff. But then it was updated and said only $1,000 went to one candidate. So I'm not sure what candidate that was. So I have a f uh, also, I guess the money was given online and it was given to a political action committee or a political, uh, political action plan called Blue Act. I'll get the spelling for that in a minute, but I want to talk about what Elder Uchtdorf said. Uh, he said that he deeply respects the policy that the church has about political donations. So let me give you some background here. In 2011, the church came out with a policy that said that full-time church leaders like the Quorum of the Twelve, people in the Seventy, full-time church leaders could not give money to political, uh, could not give money to political campaigns. And this all started because of Mitt Romney. They didn't, the church didn't want a whole bunch of people to think that people were giving to Mitt Romney, people in the Quorum of the Twelve were giving to Mitt Romney and the church would have helped Mitt Romney run for president. I understand that. I actually think that that was a good decision on the church's behalf so that they would be free from scrutiny of that kind of behavior. That was smart. Now, should the policy be changed? Because Mitt Romney is not running for president? I don't know. Leave that up to the church to decide. But here's what I do know. If we were reading the same article and it was announced and admitted by one of the Quorum of the Twelve that they donated money to President Trump uh, to his campaign, we would never hear the end of it, would we? We would hear that story for weeks, possibly about a month and a half, that somebody donated to President Trump in the Quorum of the Twelve. I guarantee it. There would be a huge outcry that that member of the Quorum of the Twelve must resign. For the record, I voted for President Trump, and, and I'm proud of it. But let me get into this a little bit deeper. I'm actually very troubled that a member of the Quorum of the Twelve would be donating to the Joe Biden campaign. Not because of the policy, but I don't understand how any good member of the church could be a Democrat. This is the party that funds Planned Parenthood. This is the party that funds abortions. This is the party that has a lot of socialist Marxists. 
What did the what did the, one of the Black Lives leaders say over the summer? We're training Marxists. Remember that? This is the party that has made us energy dependent. This is the party that promotes a lot of government welfare. Now, I'm not against government welfare. I think there's a place, but this is the party that doesn't seem to do anything about it. At least the Republicans did something about it in 1996, and President Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility Act of 1996. Now, I realize that many Republicans and Democrats are much of the same in Washington, D.C. I understand that. And I understand that maybe at the local level, there's Democrats that are fairly conservative. I understand all that. But at the national level, forget it. I cannot understand why anybody in their right mind, whether they're in the Quorum of the Twelve or not, would vote for Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. Possibly even Bill Clinton. Now, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, there were quite a few blue dog Democrats. The blue dog Democrats are basically conservative Democrats, probably with liberal leanings. And I saw a lot of blue dog Democrats in Oregon, where I lived. I, I'm from Eastern Oregon. And there were quite a few teachers who I believe were blue dog Democrats. In other words, they were pretty liberal politically. They were for higher taxes and such. But when it came to issues like abortion, they were very conservative. And I, I know some people like this. Uh, I knew people like this personally. They were very conservative socially, but fairly liberal or moderate politically, so they would label themselves as Democrats. Eastern Oregon had a lot of school teachers like this back in my day, back in the 80s and probably early to mid-90s. I remember when I was 10 years old, and probably even before, well, let's just say the 70s, 80s, and oh, early to mid-90s, more so in the 70s and 80s, but a little bit of the 90s, there were quite a few blue dog Democrats in Idaho, fairly conservative Democrats. You had Cecil Anders, who, by the way, did veto House Bill 1625 that, made, that would have made abortions illegal in Idaho. But other than that, he was pretty conservative and did quite a bit for the state. He made sure the INEL was not going anywhere. He made sure that Mountain Home Air Force Base wasn't going anywhere. He did all that. In fact, I remember very vividly my father coming home from a business trip telling us all as a family that he talked to Governor Andrews on the airplane back in 1993. I remember specifically asking him, well, uh, did you talk about Bill Clinton? No. Why? Because he's a Democrat and I didn't want to get in that, into that with the governor. Well, I remember he talked about the INEL and the Mountain Home Air Force Base. 
But the point is, you had Cecil Andrews, you had Larry Echohawk, J.D. Williams, former state auditor, Larry Echohawk, former attorney general. I'm trying to think of who else. I don't know so much about Larry LaRocco. But you had those three that I just mentioned, Larry Echohawk, Cecil Andrews, and uh, J.D. Williams. Those were pretty predominant leaders back in the late 80s, early 90s. Larry Echohawk, by the way, ran for governor. But the point is, the Democrats are not the same as they were back then. I used to be a Democrat until I realized just how corrupt the Democrat Party is. I don't even label myself as a Republican. But the point is, this does trouble me that Elder Uchtdorf, uh, you know, supposedly Elder Uchtdorf, uh, his family donated to Joe Biden. Now, it may not have been Elder Uchtdorf himself. It could have been someone who's attached to that account because he said it was a family account. So he himself may not have done it. But I've also talked to some people who are in the know about some things at church headquarters, and they've told me that Elder Uchtdorf was a Democrat, and it kind of showed in one of his talks when he talked about refugees back in 2015. Uh, back in October 2015, I believe, is what it was. <clears throat> October or April, I'd have to look it up. And there were some people that were very troubled by his talk. Now remember, in, in all fairness to Elder Uchtdorf, he was a refugee twice. And you do need to remember that the Europeans don't understand freedom and the Constitution like we do here in the States. <clears throat> Keep that in mind. But I think Elder Uchtdorf needs to take a crash course in the Constitution and figure out what liberty and freedom means. I don't mean to speak ill of the Quorum of the Twelve. But even people in the Quorum of the Twelve, in my opinion, can be misguided. But I don't think Elder Uchtdorf is going to lead us astray either. He's not going to go up there and preach false doctrine. He's not going to go up there and denounce the church. But it just boggles my mind how one could have voted for Joe Biden and be... Uh, a member of the church. It even boggles my mind even more that there are members of the church out there that are pro-choice. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Especially when the church preaches against it so much as they should. Well, I will do my yearly tradition, although I don't do it as deeply as others, but I will talk about what stuck out to me in general conference. Because it is conference weekend. And so I will be back on Monday or Tuesday of next week talking about General Conference and what stuck out to me. In the meantime, I will talk to you all later, folks. Ricky Berg.
Ricky Berg.